if you have been with us for a while, you know that we're going through this series about how to get along with other people based on the book of Romans. And I want to remind us quickly the context. Today we're going to have a sermon that requires a lot of context, and so I need to remind you of it at the front. Uh, we have a church in Rome that is sort of half Jewish and half Gentile. And so these Jewish Christians would have grown up going to the synagogue, practicing all these Jewish practices, and then they would have become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and become Christians. Remember that in the ancient world, Christianity is a subsect of Judaism. At this point in history, we think of them as separate religions, but Christianity really is a part of the Jewish um, people. It's just a particular weird rabbi named Jesus happens to be their favorite rabbi. And as you may remember, they were likely the early leaders of the church in Rome, but then the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome at one point, and that church lost their leadership. And what was left was Gentile Christians, Christians that grew up in a uh, Greco-Roman context, probably worshipped gods like Jupiter and Mars and all of those planets that we've named after deities, right? And those... Um, Roman, Greco-Roman people start taking leadership of the church and they would have been very different about how they express their faith because they obviously were not concerned with some of the Jewish traditions that the Jewish Christians would have been uh, used to. Then the emperor allows the Jews to come back and the two groups collide and now we have this major culture war in the church. What is the church going to look like with these two very different groups of people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds trying to coexist together? And I want to kind of, I'm going to give you, we're going to make up a little bit of a story. We're going to imagine today what this might look like to kind of think about the tension. Uh, for our story today, we are going to imagine that uh, we are in the market. Uh, it's important to realize that uh, ancient markets uh, were more connected to um, idolatry than you might think. Uh, this is actually a storefront in Corinth. Uh, it's what they would have looked like. They had these little spots. And you have to remember that ancient butcher shops were almost always connected to a temple. They seem, uh, seem unusual to you, but you just think for a minute about a world without refrigeration, particularly a world in which there would be a very small community. Uh, has anybody ever seen how much beef comes from a side of beef when you kill an entire cow, just how many... I mean, it's just, it's incredible. You can fill a freezer full of all the meat that comes from killing one cow. Well, obviously, in the ancient world, if you live in a tiny little town, killing that one cow, even if you share it with all your neighbors, it's going to go bad before you and your neighbors can possibly eat that much meat. And so a lot of the butcher shops ran through the temple. You would go to a bigger town like Corinth where there'd be a big temple to Apollo. You would do your sacrifice. The priest would kill the animal. You'd have the sacrifice. There'd be a little portion that was given to the gods and a portion that was given to the priest. And then the rest of it would go downstairs, get cut up into steaks and, well, I don't know, whatever ancient people ate. And then they would sell it as uh, a butcher shop out of the bottom of the basement. And this is just the most efficient way to take care of getting meat in a world with very little refrigeration. And that is where our story picks up today. So imagine with me, we have two gentlemen. We're going to call them Abraham and Claudius. Abraham is our good Jewish Christian. Claudius is our Greco-Roman Christian. That should be helpful. Abraham is obviously a very Jewish name. Claudius, a very Roman name. 
And these guys are getting together for a coffee or a java juice or whatever it is that you eat in the ancient world, hanging out in the Roman Forum, right? And they're sitting there. They're going to pray. They're going to talk. They're chatting. And across the way is one of these butcher shops that's connected with the temple. And their sister in Christ, Sophie, walks out with some steaks under her arms. And this is maybe how the conversation might go. Abraham says, can you believe that she's buying meat from there? Claudius, I know. Us Christians should not participate in that stupid temple. Well, that's not the problem, Abraham says. You're just a superstitious idiot. That temple doesn't mean anything. It's just an empty building with a dumb statue. The problem is their utensils in there are not kosher. What kind of animals are they cutting that meat up with? And did they properly slit its throat? Did they properly drain the blood? I cannot believe that anyone would eat meat that was sacrificed or was, was, was butchered in a way that is unclean, that isn't up to, to kosher rules. Claudius starts to laugh under his breath. You guys and those stupid old traditions that you have. Who cares about what kind of knife cuts it? The problem is that meat was sacrificed in front of Apollo. Apollo is this foreign deity. It's, uh, it's idolatry. There's no way that she should be involved in that in any way, shape, or form. And Abraham goes, you know, the problem with you Gentiles is you don't read Leviticus enough. You act like it doesn't matter if it's kosher or not. It's in the Bible. Do I need to pull the verse out for you? Were you not listening last week when we studied in our small group? Abraham goes, yeah, well, you don't respect our experience. You pretend like that deity's nothing. I used to worship there as a little kid. I remember how it felt, how it felt to be surrounded by the supernatural presence in that temple. You can tell me that God isn't real all you want, but I know that idolatry should not be messed with. The problem is that it's a pagan temple. No, the problem is it's kosher. And they fight and they fight and fight until Sophie walks over and goes, you're both jerks. All I'm doing is picking up dinner, and you got to judge me. I know that that temple is phony baloney. There's no real deities over there. And didn't you remember the whole thing with Cornelius, Peter? We don't have to do kosher anymore. Never mind. It doesn't matter. Both of you stink. And she just walks away in a huff. The two of them shake their heads at this silly woman who clearly doesn't understand the importance of why she should not have eaten her steak that she bought from the temple. And they go to part ways, and Abraham says, okay, I'll see you later. I've got to go prepare Yom Kippur's next week. At which point Claudius goes, Yom Kippur, really? Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. You are still doing those stupid Jewish holidays? Who's calling holidays stupid, Abraham responds. You still go to all these pagan ceremonies and all of these holidays associated with the emperor. He's evil. How are you involved? And they start all over again, right? This is the world that these guys would have lived in. Just constant knit and pick battles back and forth. Now, it may seem silly to you to have a fight over where you buy your steak, right? This would seem bizarre to us. Uh, at, I, I think even though that there are vegetarians or quasi-vegetarians in our mix, right? If you ran into Ray over at Stop and Shop and he was picking up a steak, no one's going to go, Ray, I am very disappointed in you for that choice of meat, right? Nobody's going to do that. That's not the way that we go about things. But these debates aren't maybe as silly as you think because they're just not our debates. But there's still Christians that are having plenty of little debates all over the place. There's a reason why there's 15,000 different denominational titles in the world 
Because there's groups that can't get along on stuff. Little things. Sit down with someone who's Greek Orthodox and someone who's Catholic and say, hey, what day is Easter? And just let the two of them try to hash that out. Uh, it's because they have, if you don't know, they have different Easter, they have different uh, liturgical calendars. Some celebrate Easter on one day, some celebrate Easter on another. Uh, talk to anybody about any worship issue, right? For some people, it's can we sing modern praise songs? Can we sing hymns? I know churches that will only sing the Psalms because the Psalms are God's only officially approved songbook, right? I mean, there's just all kinds of fights, and you could come up with them too. I am leery to give you any more because then you will be tipped off about things that you can fight about. There are some in this room. There are, I know, hand grenades that if I desired to, I could pull the pin out of, toss in the middle of the room, and we would all blow up because we all have these fights and these things that we can't get along about. And this chapter, Romans 14, Paul tries to deal explicitly with how we deal with it when we have differences in opinion on theological and religious ideas. Romans 14, 1 through 2. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So Paul walks in the middle of this situation, and he just says, guys, break it up, all right? Separate. Just get, get to both, both corners. Let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, and, he, and then he talks about the strong and the weak. I find it very interesting that Paul chooses to call weak those who have stricter rules. Uh, he here talks about two people, people who eat anything and then vegetarians. For us, we're like, well, why are they talking about vegetarianism? I didn't know that was a thing in the ancient world. But for many Jewish Christians particularly, they became vegetarians because the only meat source, as we talked about, was the local temple. And so they felt it better to be a vegetarian and not eat any meat that would be unkosher or be uh, uh, associated with the temple, etc., than it would be to eat, you know, possibly questionable meat. And so Paul says, it's okay for you both to have this position. Now, it's interesting, Paul has an opinion, right? Notice that he calls the people who are going to be vegetarians out of their stricter conscience, he calls them weaker brothers. This is not probably something that people who had that position would have loved being called. Like, listen, Alex doesn't eat meat. He's a total weakling, but that's okay. We're all going to respect his right to be a weakling. You know, that's very interesting that Paul takes this tactic and almost undermines what he's doing to a degree. But what he says is that we're all different, and if you have a, a disagreement on this, that's fine. Just don't fuss at each other about it. What's very interesting to me is he calls it a disputable matter. Now, this is really important and something I really want to drive home today. For a Jewish Christian who was convinced that that temple was evil and idolatrous and unkosher and all those things, this is not a disputable matter. They can pull up a scroll, open up to the section in Leviticus where it says not to eat certain kind of meats and go, it says here in the Bible, chapter and verse, this is what we are not to do. 
But Paul goes, that's a cultural disputable matter. Now that throws some of us for a loop. Because some of us have been raised that if you can pull out a chapter and verse, it obviously must be that. Now we tend to ignore the fact that the people we disagree with also have a list of chapters and verses, right, for the things that they believe in. And that's why we're disagreeing. But Paul makes very clear here that this food thing, which is a thing that is clearly put in Leviticus, is a disputable matter. And, you know, for many of us to go, well, that's Old Testament. We now have the New Testament. These people don't have a New Testament. Literally, Paul is writing it as we speak. And so their only Bible is the Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul is saying what Leviticus says very clearly, that is a disputable matter. Because Jesus is doing something different in our age. And we've got to deal with it. So it's interesting. He says, we've got these weaker brothers. Everybody get along. Get to your separate corners. This is a disputable thing. We're not going to fight about whether or not um, whether or not this is the right way to do this. Um, ultimately, he says, the reason for that is because a servant is only responsible to their master. Right? Like, uh, if there was a, if you hire an employee to, um, we hired somebody at Seven Stars to make coffee. You want to be good to the customer. But if a guy from the coffee store next door came in and was like, huh, you're making it wrong. It's like, shut up. My boss told me to make it this way. I'm going to do what my boss told me to do. Right? It is not the job of the guy from White Electric to tell the guy at Seven Stars how to make his coffee. And this is basically what Paul is saying. You're not the boss. You're not the master. Let the master take care of it. And then he has this really interesting phrase. He says at the end, they fall or stand based on the opinion of their master, and their master is Jesus, so they will stand. One of these people has the wrong opinion, and Paul says it does not matter because Christ ultimately gives us the grace that we all stand even if we get the wrong opinions. And so I can chill when my brother or sister has a phony baloney belief about something because it's okay. Jesus will eventually correct that and fix that. And I don't have to worry about it because that's Jesus' job to fix, not my job to fix. All right, Romans 14.5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Paul gives us a uh, very clear uh, description here of what matters. And basically he says, your conscience is what matters. Some of you are going to celebrate Jewish holy days or Roman holidays. This cuts both ways in the Jew-Gentile debate. Some of you are going to celebrate some of these holidays and feel totally fine about it in your heart, and that's awesome. And some of you are going to celebrate other days and feel fine about it, and that's awesome. And some of you are going to be like Jehovah's Witnesses and say no holidays at all. Okay, awesome. As long as you're convicted in your heart that that's the right answer, then that's what you do. And don't fuss at each other about it. If your friend over here really thinks this holiday's okay, then let him be. That holiday's fine for them. Just don't violate your conscience. Do what you think is right. 
And then he says, if we live, you know, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. I, I take that as if we do more things, if we express more freedom in Christ, we do so because we have freedom in Christ. And if we choose not to do things and restrict ourselves for Christ, it's because we're trying to obey Christ. And either way, if your reasoning in your heart is that this thing is right or wrong because I'm trying to do my best to follow Jesus as I understand his word, that's all right. And you can go about it differently. You can have different holy days. You can have different food practices. Whatever, that's fine. Just don't get in each other's face about it. Continuing on to the next little section. Verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account for ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Paul gives us an important um, criteria here for how we decide these things. And one of his big criteria is don't do anything that is going to cause your sister or brother to stumble. Now we've got to unpack this because a lot of Christians have weaponized this in a really terrible way, okay? Paul uses language here like do not let your sister or brother be destroyed by your use of liberty. Uh, I think what Paul is talking about here is don't do things that are going to cause people to lose their faith, walk away from Christ, be seriously, majorly injured, okay? The way I grew up, I knew people who took this verse to mean, if anybody is slightly offended by anything, you can't do it, right? I heard people, oh my gosh, this drives me crazy. Uh, you should never be claiming weaker brother status, okay? This is not something to be proud of. I have seen people in church go, I feel offended. I'm a weaker brother, so nobody in this church can do this thing. And it is a race to be the least, the thinnest skinned, most obnoxious, legalistic, pharisaical person in church. And if you run to that position, if you race to be bottom, then you get to tell everybody else what to do. That's not what Paul talks about here. There's a difference between being a stumbling block and destroying someone and doing something that I just prefer if you didn't do that, right? Those are very different things. Uh, let me give an example here. This is from my childhood. Hopefully it is obscure enough for you to not feel too uncomfortable. I grew up in churches where nobody ever drank alcohol. It was bad. We were just told, this is the worst thing on earth. You cannot drink alcohol. That was just kind of the teaching. Which, by the way, is not a particularly biblical teaching, Jesus, wine, all those things. But that's besides the point. But this verse was a big way they did this. There'd be some crotchety old lady in the church 
I'm sorry, ladies and old people, but it just happens that it was always a crotchety old lady. And she would go, I'm very offended when people drink. And so I'm a weaker brother. People cannot drink alcohol. That is not what this verse means. This verse is not to mean you can have you when you have a party. If some lady comes in who would never drink that in a million years and who is still going to go to church tomorrow regardless and who is not going to fall away from Christ, for this woman to go, well, I, it just bothers my social sensibilities. That is not a weaker brother, okay? But if you've got a friend who's been struggling to overcome alcohol addiction and it has been a real fight, and you know that the temptation for them is strong. And it's one of these people for whom one drink or one sip could lead to a spiral in their life. Put it away and get some Diet Coke. Right? And this is the difference in the wisdom here. This is what Paul is saying. There are things that destroy people, and there's things that just bug people. This passage is not about what bugs people. It's about what destroys people. And this is important, particularly in the environment he's in, where he has both Jewish and Gentile Christians who are very immature, who have both walked away from their community that they grew up in to some degree. The pagans have walked away from the temple community. The Jewish people are walking away from their synagogue community. And for them, their faith is very tenuous. And just anything could just give the pressure. They go, enough, never mind. I'm just going to go back to my old way of life. And Paul says, don't offer steak to the guy who thinks that Apollo is real and that meat has been sanctified to that deity because he is going to freak out and maybe he's going to go to the temple next week instead of going to church next week. And that is the kind of person you try to be careful of. And so Paul says your liberty should not be an excuse to mess up somebody else, to screw up somebody else's faith. But I do think there's a relatively high standard there. Um, I would also say quickly... This is a passage that is written to people who, have, uh, who are not bothered in their conscience by something about how they should treat people who are bothered. There is an audience. Maybe you've heard me say, the worst thing you can do with passages written to husbands and wives is for wives to use a passage written to husbands as a club to hit their husbands. Okay? If the passage says, husbands do this, That passage is for those gentlemen. And ladies, leave it alone. Let him do as he's instructed. You have a whole section that says wives that you can do and vice versa. The same is true here. Paul is encouraging self-control. He's saying if you have a weak brother, don't do this to them. Not, hey, weak brothers, use this passage as a club to smack over the head of your, your stronger brothers and make them not do something. Right? So in any of these circumstances, we're not, to, you know, that, that thing where it goes, well, I'm offended by it, so you can't do it because that's what Romans 14 says. Totally not the point of the passage. Paul is encouraging self-restraint, not others' restraint. This passage is not a handcuff to put on your brothers and sisters who do stuff you don't like. It is a system to restrain yourself from doing something that would offend and hurt and break down somebody else. Uh, We also got to loop back to this real quick. (laughs) I consider nothing in and of itself unclean. What is Paul talking about? Is he just talking about food? It seems like he's also talking about holy days. What kind of liberal, moralist, lawless man was Paul 
to look at the world of terrible things that can be done and go, you know, nothing by itself is unclean. This is a bizarre statement. It is one that we really have to struggle with. And it shows that Paul believes strongly in freedom in Christ. Now, I think Paul had limits, like murder would still be unclean, right? Still not a good thing. But Paul is really loose. He's like, you know what? Kosher stuff, whatever. You want to go celebrate, you know, King Claudius Day? Awesome. Go celebrate it. If you're convinced it's okay, it doesn't matter. It's not unclean in and of itself. There's so much I, uh, I could go forever on this. This is so weird. Uh, all I would say is this. Paul is, Paul's conscience doesn't get struck by as much as many of our consciences get struck by. And I'm not telling you to violate your conscience. I'm just telling you it's interesting that that's his opinion. Second of all, notice that none of this is about saying there's not a right position. Paul is convinced that eating whatever meat you want to eat is fine is his position. And beca just because someone disagrees with him on it doesn't mean he's going to abandon it, but also doesn't mean he's not going to try to argue it with people. He uses this great phrase elsewhere in his epistles. This is what I believe, and I pray that God will make it clear to you also one day. What an arrogant way to put it. This is what's right. You don't believe it, but that's okay. God will make you think what I think eventually. This is the kind of guy Paul was. But what's interesting about this passage, this is an apostle. This is a man who literally speaks to Jesus face to face, the risen Lord face to face. And in the middle of this debate about holidays and food, he does not do the one thing every last one of us would do. I'm an apostle. You can't do that. Right? We take our apostolic authority and shove it right in somebody's face. Listen, let me clear this up for you idiots. This is the way it works. Or, you know, Jesus and I personally had a conversation, and Jesus himself says this is the right position on this issue. But he doesn't do that. Paul has all the ability in the world to make an apostolic declaration about what's clean or not clean to eat. And he goes, you know what, whatever your conscience tells you, just do that. He doesn't feel the need to settle the argument. If anyone had the right to settle the argument, it is Paul. He's literally been sent by God to preach to Gentiles and Jews and bring reconciliation between the two groups. And he'd be the best guy to squash this forever. And he goes, eh, don't worry about it. Just, just get along. Just don't fight about it. Which is amazing to me. It's that he's fine with the tension. He's fine with the discussion. He doesn't feel like it has to get fixed once and for all. Like we feel like things have to get fixed. All right, I'm, yeah, I got to keep going. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink, eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Um, I don't have too much to say about this section um, except for Paul just gives this this great new criteria, is this going to break down God's work? You're free to do these things, but if you do it, are you going to be knocking down the Jenga tower? Are you going to be causing stuff to get messed up? Are you going to create your, more problems in your community than solutions in your community? And it's just a nice, very simple criteria for how we decide how to go about these things. Uh, and some of this to me says... It's okay for us to disagree on things, and it's even okay to have these academic discussions and try to maybe convince one another. Uh, the question is, is it being destructive? And many of you know that you have friends where you can talk about things until a certain point, 
and then all of a sudden feelings start getting hurt. Uh, Bruce was here last night, Bruce Bates. Um, if you've never been in a room when Bruce and I disagree on a topic, it tends to cause other people to get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Preston's probably been in the room for these. Um, and like and <laughs> Tom's been in there as well. Bruce and I will get going. And uh, when we do planters retreat, it's the best. People are like, you guys work together? Because we're just like going at it. But Bruce and I have the kind of relationship that almost every time, with very little exceptions, we will go hammers and tongs at like, no, you're wrong. No, but this verse says this, but it says this. We'll go back and forth on it. And then when it's done, it's like, okay, cool. You want to go get a burger? I mean, there's just no, there's no damage, right? Because we have that understanding. Um, and so, you know, that's okay. It's all right to have disagreements. It's okay to talk. But Paul's criteria here, are you destroying what God built up? If those conversations made it so that him and I's partnership in the gospel started to deteriorate, that's the point we need to stop having those conversations, right? And you just got to be wise about when that is. Verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But what whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. The final point that Paul makes, shut up and keep it to yourself. It's just you and God. You think that she shouldn't be eating meat from that butcher shop? Keep it yourself. It's none of your business. Be convinced of what you think in your own mind. Do what's right in your own mind. Don't violate your conscience by any means. But don't, fix, don't feel the need to fix everything. Here's the problem we have. I am convinced that many of us were um, taught growing up, maybe I'm just projecting on you, me, that we are orthodoxy protector man. It is our job every time anybody at church says something that we think is not right, we put on the cape and we're like, no, I shall stand for biblical truth. And that is exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. Paul says, shut up, keep it to yourself, no one cares. Find peace, get along, just stop fussing about it. Now, it's easy to hear this sermon, particularly when Paul says things like, nothing in itself is unclean, and think, oh, well, we're just going to go lawless now. Now there's no place to ever say anything is ever wrong. Uh, that's not my point. Um, scripture does have certain boundaries, right? Like John is really clear. Devi uh, denying either the divinity or the humanity of Jesus is a major problem. We have to confess that Jesus is God, but that Jesus also took on a human form, that he's divine and human. And when you don't, everything gets all jacked up. So that's a thing that'd be worth fighting about. Again, murder. If one of us was a murderer, I think the rest of us should stand up and go, you know, Alex, that's a very poor life choice, right? Like we need to, I'm just picking on Alex today, yeah. Right, like this is, this is, uh, <laughs> I hope this is not a stumbling block in any way, no. Uh, <laughs> So, so it's not that there's no limits, but let me make it really clear, and this is really hard for some of us. Just because you have a Bible verse that you think proves your point does not mean it's not disputable. Every important debate in the history of the church was always two groups of Christians that both had Bible verses. Okay? I'm a big free will guy. 
I believe that we choose to follow Christ and that that is part of how we come to be part of God's people. I have friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who are Calvinists that think there is no free will, that you are unconditionally adopted. I have serious problems with that position. But I acknowledge that there are a couple of verses that make my position very tenuous and very difficult. And there's a couple that make theirs very difficult. And ironically enough, when we talk, they talk about the ones that make my position bad, and I talk about the ones that make their position bad, right? It's just amazing how that works. But to me, this is a debatable, disputable issue. I am not going to cease to call them my brother or sister in Christ because we disagree on free will, even though it really ticks me off because I think free will is really important, right? Like, I mean, we're just, the, the emotion that you have is also not a criteria. Just because you feel like it's really important doesn't mean it's not. These people were talking about idolatry and talking about whether or not they're going to take the, the scriptures seriously when it came to kosher. And they had chapters and verses on both sides. And Paul says, this is a disputable thing. Shut up. Keep it to yourself. It's not your job to fix this. It's God's job to fix it. And if your brother or sister makes a mistake, guess what? That's okay because they're saved by grace. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I know I'm wound up. Um, we got rid of works righteousness a long time ago, at least in Protestant circles. A long time ago, we said, you are not saved because you do the right things. You're saved by Jesus' grace. And no matter what you have done, Jesus can save you. No matter how terrible you have been, you can be forgiven. But what a lot of us did is we dumped works righteousness, and we built something new that we didn't even call something because we don't want to be called on it, called thoughts righteousness which is you are saved if you have all the right set of beliefs. If you think everything right in your head and you have all the doctrines correct and you practice Christianity the right way, that will get you saved. And if you make a mistake, you're going to go to hell. And again, I may be projecting on you my childhood. But nonetheless, this is the way many of us were taught to believe, that we are saved by right thinking. And that is just as much a heresy as thinking you are saved by right action. If you have to get everything that's in the mind of God right, the way the mind of God thinks about it, you are screwed. <laughs> Sorry for the language, but you're, you're, you're hopeless. There is no hope because there is no way that your little finite, puny human mind will get everything right. There will be a multitude of things that you will get to heaven and God will go, all right, Caleb, oh, okay, we've got to talk about this. I know I said this, and I see we're in human minds that would mean this but really it happens all the time again i talk about kids you tell the kids something you think's very easy you know take the plate and put it in the kitchen and you walk in later and there's a plate all over the floor of the kitchen dad i put it in the kitchen right it's because they're a kid they don't understand the directions we're that way as human beings and this stuff that we're fighting about, I'm, my guess is that we're going to get to God and we're like, well, free will and determinism. And he goes, you know, there's other options than those two. And we're like, no, they're not. They're logical syllogisms. He's like, shut up, right? You guys do not know what you're talking about. And you're sitting here and you're fussing and you're fighting about something that's way beyond your pay grade. And I told you in Romans 14, keep it between yourself and me. Nobody's asking me about it at all. And you're just sitting here fighting with each other. Um, how do we get along with other people in church is to really, we need to bite our tongues more than we do. 
And when we have conversations, to have them in ways that are not destructive, in ways that honor, in ways that build up, and that acknowledge when this is over, I might not understand this. And you might. It does not kill you to acknowledge that maybe you have it wrong. But we're so surefire about how we do things. And Paul says, stop it. Because if you keep that up, what you're going to end up with is 15,000 different denominations that all have their own little quirks. And it's what we've done because we paid no attention to this passage. Um, I should say, this was in my notes. I promise it's the last thing. Um, I do think we do this pretty well at this church. Like, I'm really thankful for how well we generally get along on most things. Um, I am terrified. I know all of you well enough that every once in a while I'm like, if that person talks to that person about this subject, we're in so much trouble, right? Because I know that there's diversity. You may not know it, but I know it. And so um, I'm just thankful that so many of you keep things between yourself and the Lord and um, don't cause trouble. No, I'm not. And don't ask. I am not going to tell you what those things are. All right. (laughs) Q&A. Right. Q&A. Do you guys have any questions about today's sermon? I think that's really good. The question, you know, is do we live in a world where everybody's offended by everything? Kind of how do we deal with that? To me, this should be a point of Christian difference. I'm saved by Jesus. The king of the universe is my dad. Whatever. I don't care. Like, you know, like, uh, and this is, uh, this is a, one of my, oh, geez, this is another point. Uh, people make fun of Christians in the media all the time, right? And I always see what happens. Somebody posts the meme, posts the cartoon, whatever. And then there's like six Christians that are on it like flies on, you know, meat. And they're just like, well, we're not really that way. We're not really that way. Yeah, you are. You're literally being that in your responses to that. Can you be self-assured enough for two seconds to go, you know what? I'm sorry you feel that way. I hope I can be better. Like, that's all you have to say. And if they don't like it, that's okay. Because you've got the king of the universe on your side. So I think, so the question is how, how do we deal with things that, you know, particularly if we have personality or other issues that make us really like defined lines. How do we respond when something feels hazy, like feels defined to us, but feels hazy to someone else? Right. So first of all, we have to have thick enough skin. Um, Notice what Paul does here. Paul makes really clear that he thinks that the people who disagree with him are totally wrong. At no point in this chapter does Paul ever go, oh, you know, you're right. We should be more careful about meat. Like, he still holds his opinion, and he lets them know. Nobody is confused about Paul's opinion at the end of this chapter. But he goes, but I still respect your right to feel differently about it. And so he holds up, you know, someone's conscience is the most important thing. And so where's the big black and white line? If somebody comes to you and go, I am convinced this is totally wrong, and you don't think it is, you go, well, you shouldn't do it then if you're convinced that much. You know, and I bless you in that. I want to help you not do that thing if, that, if, you, if, if you think that's, that's wrong. So the conscience line is there. The other thing that I think would help is that you make love your black and light line. So when you walk away from any debate or any conversation, it's not, did I hold the right position in this conversation? The question is, did I show an adequate amount of love to the person I was talking to? And that's your black and white thing to focus on. Um, I would say generally for most Christians, and this is the gospel according to Caleb, you can ignore this, this is not Bible, 
most Christians have more things that they're really worked up about than they should. If you, ha- if you had to guess, am I too loosey-goosey or am I too strict? Generally speaking, we're all too strict because we're all self-righteous and we all think we're brilliant and <laughs> that, those time, that tends to make you too strict. Thank you. Yeah, I would say if you want to be a better Bible student, understanding the world the Bible was written in is the very best thing you can do. Uh, I've got a book I can show you. It's real thick and it'll really scare you. But it's really good. It, half of it is about first century Judaism and half of it's about first century um, Greco-Roman culture. And it's one of the best things you could possibly read to be a better Bible student, a New Testament student, because it just explains all the, uh, it deals with a lot of these world things, so that when you read it, you go, oh, that's the philosophy, you know, like, it's just, yeah, that's why they're worried about that, yeah. So, so given what we talked today about keeping things to yourself, how do we then handle when we feel sort of this prophetic urge to speak up and stand up for somebody? And so... But I think this is where Paul gives us a great, two great criteria. He said, what, what, do you, what does your conscience say? And then he also says, um, don't do anything that's going to tear down what God has built up. Okay, that girl that you're standing up for in your middle school class, her personhood is getting torn down. The work of God is getting torn down. And so is it worth causing a fuss? In that case, you just have to be wise and discerning and go, some the, the me not speaking in this moment will cause more for the work of God to be torn down than me speaking. Um, I think it's helpful that when we come to issues like that, like justice and kindness and love and people's dignity, that's nothing close to what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about whether or not you celebrate a holiday or what kind of meat you put on your table at dinner, right? And so, but I mean, it's, yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying that like, this chapter has no passages about whether or not, uh, none of the things they're debating is whether or not you treat a human being with basic kindness. You know, like that's a far bigger obvious issue to deal with than whether or not, you know, the peculiarities of, of first century butchering. And so, yeah, I think that, that, that those two rules, the conscience issue and then is, some, is God's work being torn down or built up is probably helpful. And I think that, when we talk about like disputable things that this is, I think this is a good example of something that the church isn't as roiled up as they probably should be about because we do have very vastly different opinions within the church. There are full on pacifists that believe, like you said, there is no way to appropriately take a life. And there's other just war doctrine people that go, well, no, if it's a war and you're saving other people's lives and you're prevent, you know, preserving freedom and all those things, that's a godly thing to do. And I know in this room there's people that feel differently about that issue very clearly. And it's hard in in our country because it's tied to patriotism and it's tied to nationalism and are you a real American or not, you know, and all these kinds of things. And I think it's a good example, though, of a thing where we can keep to ourselves. You know, I mean, if if you're a pacifist, you can still shake the hands of a soldier for what they've done and appreciate the heart that they did it with, even if you don't agree with the actions. And but that I mean, that's hard, right? That gets real walking up to a veteran with when in your head, you're like, I don't believe war is ever justified. It's a very can be a very complicated thing. And it's I think you're right. This is a great example of something where keep it between yourself and God. Show respect and honor for one another and be done with it. You know.